Well, good morning there, Valley Bible Church. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online platform. We're jumping into a new series uh, called Miraculous Conflict. We're still journeying through the Gospel of John. We're in chapters 5 starting today. We're going to go 5, 6, and 7. And we're kind of packaging these three chapters just like we did three chapters before. But these three chapters, things really start to change. Jesus displays himself with more uh, miraculous actions, and Jesus' statements about himself uh, become more profound. He speaks of his miraculous power, but then a, a shocking kind of response grows amongst those who hear these statements and see these signs. They start to have a, a negative response. So we see a great deal of conflict arise out of these miraculous signs, and then Jesus' statements about his miraculous power. And what we're going to find is as shocking and surprising as it is to have conflict after a miracle, you think there'd be clarity, you think there'd be confession, you think there'd be rejoicing, but there's conflict. And most of the conflict is negative. Some of it is positive, but most of it is negative. And that's shocking and it's surprising and it's a little, honestly, alarming as we read through it. But I think we're also going to find it's very insightful. We're going to learn a lot about ourselves as we look at these different reactions to Jesus' miracles and his statements of his miraculous power. But before we get to chapter 5, let me ask you this question. How good are you at finding or seeing the things that really hurt you in your life? Let me rephrase that. Uh, How good are you at kind of pinpointing the things that cause pain in your life? Or, Or maybe another way to say that is, how good are you at finding the root causes that make you experience brokenness in your life? Oftentimes, we look outward to find those things. Or maybe we look at the symptoms or, or the kind of consequences of brokenness, pain, or hurt. But how good are you at finding those things that are really causing those things? Maybe looking more inwardly to find those things. It's a very painful thing to do. It takes a lot of awareness. It takes a lot of self-examination. And if we actually get down to the root cause, maybe something internally in here that's causing our brokenness, that's causing our hurt, that's causing our pain, then we have the even harder step is we can't push that finding away. We can't deny it. We can't ignore it. We must embrace it. We must face it. We must do something with it. How good are you at seeing those things? See, oftentimes our desires are very destructive. The problem is that a lot of the pain, hurt, and brokenness in our life is caused by us. Now, some of it's not, but a lot of it is. And if we really look internal, we find this kind of mess that's in here, these desires in here that aren't good, but actually destructive. Many of our desires are destructive. It's like, it's like a, a kid thinking that he can eat candy for dinner. Sometimes we don't realize that what we want is sometimes the worst thing for us. And this is exactly what Jesus is going to show us in John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. What we're going to find is that Jesus is going to perform a miracle, and then there's going to be two reactions or two responses. And both of these responses are negative. And in these responses, here's what we're going to see. 
we're going to see that the negative reaction comes because these, these groups are holding on to these sinful desires, and these sinful desires are making them miss Jesus. And these sinful desires are actually very destructive. Let me show you this. Let's go to John chapter 5, starting with verse 1. And I think we can summarize the big idea for this morning. The big idea or main idea of Jesus' teaching as Jesus performs this miracle and then he kind of interacts with these reactions to the miracle. Is I think Jesus' main point here and John the gospel writer's main point is this. Sin is self-destructive. If you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write that down. That's the big idea for this morning. Sin is self-destructive. Sin is very counterproductive. It's very ironic. We, we, we seek to do one thing with it, but we actually get the exact opposite that we wanted. We seek happiness. We seek fulfillment. We seek satisfaction. We seek joy. And what we get is hurt. And what we get is pain. And what we get is brokenness. And this is going to come out in a really large and clear display. Because as Jesus shows himself to be incredibly powerful, and he reveals himself with, with just, just brilliant light, this response, this pushback is going to show just how deep these sinful desires are and how destructive they can be to us. So let's start with verse 1, and here's what we're going to see. These kind of reactions are layered a little bit. So before we jump in, let me tell you how it kind of works. The first reaction is from one man. And so his reaction is a little layered. What I mean by that is we kind of get the first glimpse of his reaction. Then we get the second reaction from a group of people. Then the third part is really the end of the first part. It's the kind of, it fills in the gaps from the first reaction. So it's going to take us a while to kind of get to the, the meat of this where that main idea comes out. But let me set up the scene for you, and we'll see that that's Jesus' point in this account, that sin is self-destructive. Let's set the scene, verse 1 of John chapter 5. It says this, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roof colonnades, And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, immediately we kind of have a strange scene here that sets up this story. Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem, and there's some sort of feast. We're not told what it is, but that means there's going to be this great big crowd in Jerusalem, which is kind of an important detail to remember when we get later into our passage. But there's this big festival that's happening, a religious festival that's happening, and Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. But Jesus makes a very strange stop. Jesus goes to this pool, the pool at Bethesda. He goes to this pool, and we know from the ancient records that this is not like a, a, a community swimming pool. Don't think of it like that this was a large pool. It was probably composed of two different pools. And if you put both the pools together, the thing was about the size of a football field. So it's incredibly large. If you don't think swimming pool, think like a, a large pond, if you will. And so Jesus is coming up to this kind of large body of water, a football-sized swimming pool, and there's all these people scattered around. 
And it's, it's these, these blind people and lame people and paralyzed people. Kind of the, the low end of the totem pole in, in the kind of social standings. The weak, the, in, the infirm, the, the invalids as it calls them here. Now, now why is this Jesus here? Like what, what is he doing here? This is a strange place to be. I mean, it's strange in one sense because this is not, if you're going to go to Jerusalem, this is not like the hot tourist spot. This is not an exciting place to be. It's a very un- unpleasant place to be. It's a very uncomfortable place to be. It would be very uncomfortable and unpleasant to kind of walk through this kind of scene of, of suffering, of, of all this hurt, this pain, and this agony. But it would also be actually dangerous. Now, what do I mean by that? Not that Jesus would be robbed by these paralyzed people or anything like that. But the idea is that that Jesus is going to a religious festival. And if Jesus were to touch one of these people, whether they be blind or lamed or paralyzed, Jesus could actually become ceremonially unclean, which means he couldn't go to the temple to worship at this festival. So this is almost religiously dangerous for Jesus to go here because he could get some of their uncleanness on himself. And yet this is where Jesus is. The, the, the proper people of the day would not go here, but Jesus finds himself here. It's odd. Well, let me tell you, the story gets even more and more and more puzzling, more and more odd as we work through the details. So Jesus finds himself at this very strange place. But why are these people there? It's strange that Jesus is there, but why is this group of blind, lame, and paralyzed people there? Well, he meets a man in verse 5, or sees a man in verse 5, and that man tells us. Look at verse 5. And one man was there who had been there, or had been an invalid for 38 years. Now jump down to verse 6. I just want to comment on this right here. Or sorry, jump down to verse 7, and we'll get to verse 6. It said, the sick man, so this man that Jesus saw, answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. What is he talking about here? So now this football-sized pool has a stirring, a movement of water, And this paralyzed man is seeking to go into the water, but somebody is cutting him off. What is this place? This is a pagan healing cult. This is a a, a pagan uh, ceremonial cleansing shrine. This is a, a place of healing. These were very common in the ancient world, especially in Greek religion. To have a place that's centered especially with water that you would go down and receive cleansing and that whatever ailment that you had would be released from you once you got out of the water or somehow the water was ministered to you. This is what's happening here. This is a a, a pagan thing which we would say from a biblical standpoint would be a satanic thing. Because I, I, I find it hard to believe that there'd be a great crowd of the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, if there wasn't a popular notion that this place actually provided some sort of healing? How could you maintain this great crowd if this was a complete 
charade. People probably were healed. And so this man is hoping that he would be one of those people. So he is waiting for the waters to be stirred, whatever that means. Hopefully he can touch that water and that he can be healed. So Jesus finds himself right now in competition with with pagan religious healing practices. This man, even though he's near the temple, and we'll see later that he'll participate in the temple worship, this man is not an Orthodox Jew. He doesn't see things from kind of a, a biblical standpoint. But this is where Jesus is, in a strange place with all of these people who are suffering, suffering in, a, in, a, in a pagan place, in a satanic place. And then Jesus, in, in all this strange kind of atmosphere, is going to ask, I believe, one of the strangest questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels. Look at what Jesus says to the man that he sees. Let's go to verse 6. When Jesus saw him laying, this is the man who had been there for a long time, who had been an invalid for 38 years, it says in verse 6. When he saw him laying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, no matter if you read that for the first time, second, third, fourth, fifth, or whatever, doesn't that seem like a really silly question? Right? I, I know our teachers often told us, you know, there is no question that is a dumb question. Okay, but we all know in practice, we've received several questions that we would not call very intelligent questions. And if you haven't, become a parent. Trust me, those will come. But right here, we have Jesus asking a question that seems like a very silly question. Do you want to be healed? I mean, just think of the scene that's before us. This man, Jesus has seen that he's been there for a very long time. He's been in his state of paralysis for over 38 years. He has somehow placed himself at this pagan healing shrine. And he is now competitively working to beat others out so he can get in the water that is stirred up. If this man didn't want to be healed, then why is he there? Like, what is he doing? Clearly, he wants to be healed. So what's happening here with Jesus' question? I think Jesus is displaying some of his supernatural knowledge here. We don't see the full picture. We're missing something. Jesus sees something that we don't see Humanly on the surface. We've seen this with Jesus just in the last four chapters that we've covered in the Gospel of John. That Jesus several times will make a statement that at first does not sound, well, coherent or doesn't sound right or sounds a little off base. And then later on the story we realize that Jesus knew a lot more than we could see from the situation before he made that statement. Jesus sees from a different perspective. So there's something that Jesus is looking for. Now we have to wait till we get to the end of our passage to kind of get to that. But already we see this kind of strange tension start to build. Something is going on here. This man has more of a problem than his paralysis. That maybe is a symptom 
of something else. Let's jump to verse 7. Because the scene is going to get even more strange. He's in a strange place, answers a very strange question, and the man gives him a very strange answer. He doesn't answer directly. He doesn't say, yes, I want to be healed. Rather, he shows his poor view of God and his poor view of others. Look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. What does he say? Well, he says, well, there's nobody here to help me. He speaks of his abandonment. He speaks of his family and friends are not there to assist him, to help him. He, he, he wants to be healed, but he can't be healed because everybody has left him. This, this man kind of shows that, that his problem is outside of him. That he is a victim of his physical ailment, but now he's a victim of abandonment from others. But then he shows his hand here a little bit when it comes to his view of God. He believes God works on this kind of first come, first serve basis. Like, hopefully nobody cuts you in line before you get to the pool, because I only serve, the people who are only going to get healed are the fast people. Which seems incredibly ironic for people who are paralyzed seeking healing. Or people who are lame seeking healing. And people who are blind seeking healing. You can imagine just the crowd chaos that happens. That once there's an indication that there's something miraculous happening. There's now blind, lame, and paralyzed people crawling, running aimlessly around. Trying to get into the water first. I mean, what a crazy scene. And this man believes that this is how God would have set up things. That it's first come, first serve. you got to get in the carpool lane to get your healing. Well, clearly, that is not the God of the Old Testament. This betrays that the man's thinking is not biblical. It's not orthodox. It's not founded on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of his ancestors. So we have a strange place, a very strange question from Jesus. Do you want to be healed? A very strange answer. And now I think we have a very strange action from Jesus. Look at what Jesus does. This man shows his hand that he has a kind of false view of God, that he's seeking pagan, pagan healing, that he, he has a very low view of his friends and family who have abandoned him. But in the midst of all of that, verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This is such an odd pattern here, such an odd rhythm for Jesus. It seems out of sync. First off, the two miracles that we've seen prior to this one, in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, It's people coming to Jesus that get a miraculous healing. Here we have Jesus taking the initiative. In the other two miracles, and many of the other miracles that are recorded in the Gospels for us, there's a sense of faith that is there, and then a healing. And it almost appears that the rhythm seems to be that in order to get the healing that you want, there has to be the met condition of faith. You place faith or some sort of degree of faith in Jesus, and then you receive this healing. That is not anything what we see in this account here. 
First, Jesus takes the initiative, and then this man shows no display of faith, and he receives healing. What an odd and strange situation. In fact, we'll learn later that the man didn't even know Jesus' name. Not only does he not display or his faith is not mentioned, there seems to be no room for him to have faith. Jesus just instantaneously heals the man. Strange. This, this, this story, this event, leaves us puzzled. It leaves us wanting for more, begging for more. There's something missing here. There's something to this man that we're not seeing. He has a deeper problem, a deeper problem that D- Jesus has not yet addressed, even though he's given him healing. Then we follow that with another response to the miraculous. We'll get back to this man later. But in between his kind of experience with Jesus, we have an experience of a group responding to Jesus' miracle. And we're going to see another very strange response, a strange question that will come at this man again, not this time at the lips of Jesus, but the lips of the religious leaders of the day. Look at verse 9. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now at first, for us, this this may sound strange. Why are they, why are these Jews uh, kind of uh, accusing this man of committing a crime? He's just carrying a mat. He's carrying a bed that's insignificant. How can that be a crime? Did, did he park his bed wrong? Did he parallel park, right? Did he do something wrong? Did his, did his toll go up? Or what was going on? What's happening here is something very serious and very religious, something that we miss as first century hearers or first century readers. See, the Sabbath day was supposed to be a day of rest. God commanded it to be so. And in the Old Testament, God commanded that we would rest from all of our work, our our normal job was the idea. So if you were a, a carpenter, you're uh, on the Sabbath, you shouldn't do any carpentry work. If, if you were um, somebody who uh, worked uh, with metal or something like that, then you should rest from any metal work on the Sabbath. If, if your job was an auto mechanic, of course not in the first century world, but now would be a good example of that. If you were an auto mechanic, you should not do anything at your shop on the Sabbath. The idea is don't do your normal job. The idea wasn't don't do anything. Rather, the idea was just just free yourself from your normal occupation and take a day of rest. Clearly, even when we're resting or on vacation, we still do things. You see, but the religious leaders of the day took this kind of command of God and they, they put all these things around it just to make sure well, we don't want to break this, so we're going to put this parameter around it. And they came up with 30 nine different distinctive acts that you cannot do on the Sabbath. So they took God's command and exaggerated it. And one of those is you can't carry a load from one place to another. So clearly this man is breaking the Sabbath. Now look at this response. This is remarkable, shocking, incredibly strange. Verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, That man said, take up your bed and walk. 
What did this man just say? He explained, well, this is why I'm doing this behavior. Because I was healed. I used to lay on that mat and I never moved. But a man came to me and healed me. And now I can walk. A miracle has taken place. So that's why I'm carrying my bed. And look at this question. Verse 12. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Did they miss it here? Their question seems to miss the large, important thing the man said. The man just told him, here's what's happening. I just got healed. I was paralyzed. I'd been so 38 years. I was waiting by a pool, a pagan sanctuary to be healed. Jesus Christ comes on the scene. He heals me instantaneously. That's why I'm carrying my mat. And they say, whoa, 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 whoa. Did you say mat? You're carrying your mat? Who told you to carry your mat? Like, guys, did you, did you, not, did you not get the first part? I've been healed. A miracle has taken place. And yet they don't ask him about that. Immediately, they, they, they kind of change roles and they become like these, these crime scene investigators. They become like detectives. They feel like a crime has happened. Somebody has breached their code. Somebody has broken one of their 39 little articles that, 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 that keeps safe the command of God. Somebody has ruined their rules. And so they've got to make up for that infraction. They got to do something about it. Meanwhile, they've missed the significant work of God. Instead of being worshipers looking and enjoying what God is doing among them, rather they're more concerned about this moral infraction to a Sabbath day. How on earth can they miss this? And here's what we're going to see. This is just a seed, a seed of rejection, a, a, a seed of a negative response. But this seed will grow. In the gospel of John, this conflict will flourish into a large tree of resentment of Jesus. And it will culminate in them seeking to kill Jesus. In fact, we'll see this after miraculous display after miraculous display. It'll say right after that in the gospel of John that they sought to kill Jesus. How on earth does that make sense? Like how can they miss it? How can their behavior be so destructive? I mean, Jesus is displaying himself as the savior of the world, as one who can undo the curse of the fall, who can take away physical ailments, who can reverse the fall of Adam and Eve. He's the one they've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is the one who, like God the Father himself, can speak one word and create something. Jesus spoke one word and created this man of new. Jesus is displaying incredible power, and yet these men miss it because they're so confined to what? To their sin. John, the gospel writer, made it clear just two chapters ago in John Chapter 3, verse 19, he explained 
their response. The reason they react like this, the reason they miss the miracle and they start to investigate Jesus, investigate him for being somebody who breaks their religious practices, it's not because they don't believe in Jesus' miracles. It's not because they don't have enough evidence before them. They have plenty of light. They just love darkness. Look what John said in John chapter 3, verse 19. It says, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and the people who loved darkness rather than light, or people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their works should be exposed. Why do they resist the light? Why, when Jesus displays himself as bright as the sun, do they push him away? It's because they love darkness. They are obsessed with their religious rules. They're obsessed with the law. They're obsessed with the do's and the don'ts of their religious systems. So much so that they believe that if they can just compile enough of a righteous resume that they'll be right with God. They feel they can earn God's love, that they can work for God's love, that God's love is like a paycheck. They put in their moral and ethical hours. They do their religious observances. They do all these things, and they'll build up a righteousness from their works. But that is sinful. That's not right. That, 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 that spiritual self-reliance, that that, that religious arrogance, that, that prideful moral posture is not what the Scripture commands of us. We don't have a righteousness that we earn. We don't have a righteousness that we achieve. Our righteousness is something we receive. Paul makes this clear in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. He says this, and to be found in him, that's in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the message of Christianity, the central message of Christianity, the central message of Jesus Christ, the central message of Jesus Christ's closest followers who pin the rest of the New Testament. Righteousness is not something earned or achieved. It's something received by faith. These men seek to earn it. And that unholy desire, that prideful desire, that blind desire is making them miss Jesus. Their sin is destroying them. Their sin is self-destructive. Their moral pride, religious arrogance, their spiritual self-reliance. Their, their idea of leaning on their work righteousness, their works righteousness, the building a resume is destroying them because they're missing the Savior they so desperately need because they believe they can save themselves. Their sinful desires are self-destructive. And this is the same thing true of the man we first met, the paralyzed man who Jesus healed. We're reintroduced to him. Let's see, in verse 13. 
And the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, so now Jesus interacts again with this man. This is kind of the follow-up, and this is where we really start to unpack the, the strange question that Jesus first asked and really start to understand the depth of this man's well, sinful desire, and why he responded to Jesus' question in the way that he did. How he responded with blaming everybody else, but not speaking of himself and what he had done. Look at this interaction, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. It's the same word that Jesus used in his very strange question. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? This is the same word that Jesus uses here. So Jesus is saying, look, you are physically okay. Everything looks good. You're walking around. Very nice. Then look what Jesus says. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. Now, that is a very interesting sentence that Jesus puts together there. Sin no more. Why? What's the reason? Jesus sees some behavior in this man that is not good. He says, sin no more, which probably indicates this man is currently sinning. He has some sort of sinful habit he's doing right now, which would explain why the man didn't display a great deal of faith in Jesus. That even though he's at the temple, maybe worshiping, this was also the man who was at a pagan shrine just a little bit ago. So he's at a pagan shrine, and then he's at the temple. Clearly, his faith isn't all figured out. And so Jesus tells him, you have a big problem. You need to sin no more. Stop sinning. And then Jesus' reasoning for this is very interesting. He says that nothing worse may happen to you. What is Jesus doing here? I think you see it just as I've read it several times. Jesus is connecting this man's sickness with his sin. He's saying, don't sin because something worse than you already had before could happen. So he's saying there's a consequence to your sin. Your physical ailment from before, your paralysis from before was caused by your sin. Now, we got to be careful here. Let's just take a side note here. It's not fair to conclude from that that all sin leads to sickness or that all sickness is because of a specific sin. That's not a good way to read this. We see this later, actually, in John's gospel. In John chapter 3, Jesus is addressing a man who has been born blind or speaking to the disciples about that man. And in John chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus said, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus there says, no, this man's sickness is not caused by sin. So we can't say that all sickness is caused by sin. But that doesn't mean we can't say that some sickness is caused by sin. Not all, but some. And this is a fair way of reading this passage. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul, later in the book of Corinthians, in chapter 11 of the book of Corinthians, he would comment and tell the church, one of the reasons for your sickness is because you've sinned in how you take the Lord's communion. Some of you are now sick, and he even says some of you had died. So he connects sin and sickness. So Jesus is saying, you need to zoom out. All you saw was your physical sickness. That's all you saw. That's what he's saying to this man. But see, when I saw you, I saw more. I saw more than just your your physical sickness. I saw more than just your paralysis. I saw more than you just being an invalid. I saw more. I saw the sin that was causing that. Your your sickness was a symptom, a consequence of your spiritual problem. So this makes a lot more sense now of Jesus' question at the very beginning. When Jesus asked the man, do you want to be healed? Jesus was asking that question with that large perspective, the physical and spiritual perspective. The man probably heard it only addressing the physical, but Jesus was speaking of both. So I think we could expand Jesus' question, and I think his intention could be displayed. We could say it this way. We could say, Jesus, Jesus saying the man could simply be this. Do you want to be freed from your sin and the consequence that is caused by that sin? Do you want to be freed from your sin and the sickness that is caused, or the, that is the consequence of that sin. Jesus asking more of the man. He's not saying, do you want just physical healing? What he's asking is, do you want spiritual reform? Do you see that your problem is much deeper? And watch this. This is the sad turn for this man. Because we're going to see, just like the religious leaders, he's going to cling to his sin. He's going to show that he loves darkness more than light. And just as they wanted to oppress Jesus, hurt Jesus, convict him of a crime, being a Sabbath breaker, this man betrays Jesus. Look at verse 15. This is his response after Jesus has confronted him with his sinful behavior, the thing that is truly crippling him as a person. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. What's happening here? This man is not hoping to give Jesus the credit. He's not saying, oh, you you have to know who healed me. Let me tell you, it's Jesus. No, if his motive was to give Jesus praise, then he would have told anybody and everybody who would have listened. He would have told his friends and family members who, who left him abandoned at that pool. He would have told them. But he seeks out the Jews, those he already knows are in opposition to Jesus. Those he already knows are displaying hostility towards Jesus. What is he seeking to do? He wants to get Jesus in trouble. He wants to provide focus to their opposition. This man 
is betraying Jesus. This is a small glimpse of the betrayal of Judas. It's kind of a, a foreshadowing of the betrayal of Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas. This man loves his sin so much that he would betray the very man who healed him. How on earth can that happen? Sin is self-destructive. We see it for the group of religious leaders. They're just so caught up in their sinful pursuit, their, their, their arrogant uh, uh, running after of religion, that they can impress God, they, they can leverage God, they, can, they do enough that puts God at, in their debt. That you have to love us because we've earned it. We've achieved it. We've arrived. And this kind of arrogant religious behavior is a sinful posture before God. And yet they hold on to it so tightly that even when Jesus displays his miraculous power, they'll deny it and they'll seek to destroy it. They think their religious pursuit of works righteousness will save them. And they're holding on so tightly to it. But what it is, it's not their salvation. What they're holding on to is, is an anchor that will bring them down to the seafloor with no air to breathe. It'll destroy them. That's what's happening. That's what we're seeing grow in these men. And then we see the same thing in this man who's healed. He loves his sins so much. He thinks all he needs is physical healing. All he needs is his sickness to go away. But the moment Jesus tells him that sin can't be something he pursues anymore, the man turns on him. You talk about biting the hand that feeds you. This man is biting the hand that heals him. Sin is so self-destructive, so counterproductive, so ironic. It kills us. It almost cannibalizes itself. It, it, it turns on itself. We see this in, in our society. I can think of a, a, a perfect example of this in our modern society. Perfect example of this is the pornography industry. One of the only businesses right now that is booming is the pornography industry. One pornography company said that they had an 18% increase in viewership over this pandemic. 18% increase in viewership. What does that do? We follow those desires inside of us. And you know what it does? It destroys us. Pornography erodes the very foundation of a flourishing society. How so? It's very simple. Pornography users are twice as likely to get a divorce than non-pornography users. And what does divorce do? 
a broken home causes incredible negative fallout to all those involved. Broken homes lead to higher crime rates. That one of the most significant common factors of those who are incarcerated is they come from a broken home. Do you see how simple? It's not very many steps. Pornography may feed the desire inside of us, but it also destroys us. That desire is met, but then divorce is more likely, and after divorce is more likely, then crime and the eroding of society is more likely. In three simple steps, we see the self-destructive nature of sin. It's right there before us. We saw it in the man who was healed. We saw it in the religious leaders. We see it all the time. As followers of Jesus Christ, what do we do with that? As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to trust God's goodness. What do I mean by that? As followers of Jesus Christ, we don't follow our desires. We follow God's design. Because our desires are fallen, they're corrupt. There's some good in them, but they've been tilted and changed and distorted. So they always produce negative outcomes. So we cannot trust our desires completely. We need to be informed by God's design. And when we don't take into account God's design, we'll follow our desires to our own destruction. Following our desires will just lead to more pain, more hurt, and more brokenness, and ultimately to our separation from God. So as followers of Jesus Christ, the first step we need to take in keeping ourselves from such a state as described here is to trust the goodness of God, to trust that what he wants for us is what's best for us, and not necessarily what we want for ourselves. The first sin of the garden happened when? Before the act of rebellion, there was first an act of distrust. God does not have my best in mind. That was the lie of Satan, believed by Adam and Eve. When we start to to erode our trust in the goodness of God, when we start to have unbelief that what he has for us is what's best for us, when we push away his design and we follow our desires, that mistrust then leads to sin. And then that sin leads to captivity. It leads to bondage, such great bondage that even when the consequences are severe, we'll still cling to it like, like spiritual, sinful Addicts will run after the very needle that is destroying us. That's what's happening right here in John chapter 5 in the first 15 verses. The man who was healed, this group of leaders, are so taken by their sin that even when the consequence is clearly severe to go against the miraculous work of Jesus... The man who can heal, who can do wonders, to set yourself against him would be a foolish thing to do. Yet they're so in love with their sin, so in love with darkness, they can't let go of it. So my question to you is this, as a follower of Jesus Christ, 
Do you want to be healed? Just like Jesus said, do you want to be healed? But I mean it in that deeper sense that Jesus meant to that man. Do you want to be freed from your sin? The true thing that causes the hate, the hurt, the pain, and the brokenness in your life. Do you want to be freed from that? Or do you look to God as one who can just give you comfort and physical health? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be freed from your sin? I want to challenge you this week to do something that I'm afraid is very much a lost Christian practice. And it's the practice of confession. I want you to find some time this week to confess your sin to God. Just to take some time. Maybe part of your devotional time. Maybe you don't have a devotional life. It's a good way to start that practice. Take some time. Set it out on a calendar. Mark it. I'm going to have this 30 minutes, this 15 minutes between just me and God, and I'm going to confess my sin. Is there any sin in your life that you're hiding? Any sinful habits that you, you're, you're, you're allowing not to, to come out? I think you and I both know that we don't hide sin. We think we're hiding sin. What we really do is we're just feeding it in darkness. But one day, what we fed will break out of that cage and consume us. And take us to a place that we don't want to go, similar to where these men were in their response to Jesus. My encouragement to you this week, take some time, set it aside this week, confess your sin to God. Now maybe you're watching this, and you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. But you're still kind of searching that out. Well, I want to say, first off, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your spiritual journey. I think God will reward your spiritual curiosity. I think the further and further you look into Jesus, the more and more you're going to find truth, and the more and more you're going to find satisfaction. And I think it's very appropriate to take time to evaluate the claims of Jesus Christ. I know for myself, I went to church for months, maybe even years, before I ever started following Jesus Christ because I had so many questions and I was so curious and God rewarded that curiosity. And so I want to encourage you, if that's the path that you're on, I want, I, I want to encourage you that that is a good thing. At the same time, I want to give you kind of a, a, just a sober warning. When I read this passage, I thought of another passage in the Old Testament in Proverbs chapter 14. It says, there is a, a way that seems right to man, but in the end leads to death. Man, what a sobering passage. That everything seems okay and the man's plan seems right and everything seems to be going good until the very end. And then it all unravels. You know, maybe, maybe your confidence in the course that you have right now for your life is a little shaky. Maybe you're not so sure. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, maybe I need to make some adjustments in my life. And maybe that's why you're, you're watching and you're joining us because you're curious in that. 
Or maybe life is getting really bumpy and you're thinking, man, I need to make some really big changes. Well, let me say this again. I believe your curiosity will be rewarded, but let me encourage you, please make your curiosity diligent. May it have great focus. Because here's the thing about sin. The scary thing about sin that we've seen in these two responses to Jesus is sin is not casual. There are consequences to sin. And sin can harden your heart. It can keep you from a positive response to Jesus. You can't play with sin. You can't domesticate sin. It will seek to consume you, to harden you. Think of it like the most infectious virus there is. And it is pervasive in its effects. So seek out the claims of Christ, yes, but do it with diligence. Because you don't know as each day passes, sin can make your heart harder. So hard that even if Jesus were to display himself like he did here, you wouldn't see it. My encouragement to you is seek out Christ and do it diligently. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that you have shown yourself to us in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, you have made a a great testimony to who Jesus Christ is. You've shown us his greatness and his power. You bring to life this book. Every time that it was taught, every time that it is read, every time that someone hears it, Holy Spirit, you are the one that is bringing it to our heart. It is a living document. It is showing forth Christ every time we encounter it. Holy Spirit, I pray that we do not push against your work. We try not to dim the light of your revelation toward us. I pray that you would slay the sin that is in us, that keeps us spiritually blind, that keeps us from the significance of who Jesus Christ is. Oh, Father, I pray that you would break through our spiritual blindness and show us the brilliance of who you are. We pray that you would Reveal yourself to us in a way that is undeniable and shakes us free from the chains of sin that encompass us. Free us from our habits that keep us from seeing you completely. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing you next Sunday.